Section 5 of the History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary R. Beard. Part 4. The West and Jacksonian Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary R. Beard. Part 4. The West and Jacksonian Democracy. Chapter 11. Jacksonian Democracy Concluded. The Rise of the Whigs. Jackson's Measures Arouse Opposition. Measures So Decided policies so radical and conduct so high-handed could not fail to arouse against Jackson a deep and exasperated opposition. The truth is, the conduct of his entire administration profoundly disturbed the business and finances of the country. It was accompanied by conditions similar to those which existed under the Articles of Confederation. A paper currency almost as unstable and irritating as the worthless notes of revolutionary days flooded the country, hindering the easy transaction of business. The use of federal funds for internal improvements, so vital to the exchange of commodities which is the very life of industry, was blocked by executive vetoes. The Supreme Court, which under Marshall had held refractory states to their obligations under the Constitution, was flouted. States' rights judges, deliberately selected by Jackson for the bench, began to sap and undermine the rulings of Marshall. The protective tariff under which the textile industry of New England, the iron mills of Pennsylvania, and the wool, flax, and hemp farms of the West had flourished, had received a severe blow in the Compromise of 1833, which promised a steady reduction of duties. To cap the climax, Jackson's party Casting aside the old reputable name of Republican, boldly chose for its title the term Democrat. Throwing down the gauntlet to every conservative who doubted the omniscience of the people. All these things worked together to invoke an opposition that was sharp and determined. Clay and the National Republicans in this opposition movement, leadership fell to Henry Clay, a son of Kentucky, rather than to Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. Like Jackson, Clay was born in a home haunted by poverty. Left fatherless early and thrown upon his own resources, he went from Virginia into Kentucky, where, by sheer force of intellect, he rose to eminence in the profession of law. Without the martial gifts or the martial spirit of Jackson, 
he slipped more easily into the social habits of the East, at the same time that he retained his hold on the affections of the boisterous West. Farmers of Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky loved him. Financiers of New York and Philadelphia trusted him. He was thus a leader well fitted to gather the forces of opposition into union against Jackson. Around Clay's standard assembled a motley collection representing every species of political opinion united by one tie only, hatred for, quote, old hickory. Nullifiers and less strenuous advocates of states' rights were yoked with nationalists of Webster's school. Ardent protectionists were bound together with equally ardent free traders, all fraternizing in one grand confusion of ideas under the title of National Republicans. Thus, the ancient and honorable term selected by Jefferson and his party, now abandoned by Jacksonian democracy, was adroitly adopted to cover the supporters of Clay. The platform of the party, however, embraced all the old Federalist principles, protection for American industry, internal improvements, respect for the Supreme Court, resistance to executive tyranny, and denunciation of the spoils system. Though Jackson was easily victorious in 1832, the popular vote cast for Clay should have given him some doubts about the faith of, quote, the whole people, in the wisdom of his, quote, reign. Van Buren and the Panic of 1837 Nothing could shake the general's superb confidence. At the end of his second term, he insisted on selecting his own successor. At a national convention chosen by party voters, but packed with his office holders and friends, he nominated Martin Van Buren of New York. Once more, he proved his strength by carrying the country for the Democrats. With a fine flourish, he attended the inauguration of Van Buren and then retired, amid the applause and tears of his devotees, to the hermitage, his home in Tennessee. Fortunately for him, Jackson escaped the odium of a disastrous panic which struck the country with terrible force in the following summer. Among the contributory causes of this crisis, no doubt, were the destruction of the bank and the issuance of the, quote, specie circular of 1836, which required the purchasers of public lands to pay for them in coin instead of the paper notes of state banks. Whatever the dominating cause, the ruin was widespread. Bank after bank went under. Boomtowns in the West collapsed. Eastern mills shut down and working people in the industrial centers, starving from unemployment, begged for relief. 
Van Buren braved the storm, offering no measure of reform or assistance to the distracted people. He did seek security for government funds by suggesting the removal of deposits from private banks and the establishment of an independent treasury system with government depositories for public funds in several leading cities. The plan was finally accepted by Congress in 1840. Had Van Buren been a captivating figure, he might have lived down the discredit of the panic unjustly laid at his door. But he was far from being a favorite with the populace. Though a man of many talents, he owed his position to the quiet and adept management of Jackson rather than to his own personal qualities. The men of the frontier did not care for him. They suspected that he ate from, quote, gold plate, and they could not forgive him for being an astute politician from New York. Still, the Democratic Party, remembering Jackson's wishes, renominated him unanimously in 1840 and saw him go down to utter defeat. The Whigs and General Harrison By this time, the National Republicans, now known as Whigs, a title taken from the party of opposition to the crown in England, had learned many lessons. Taking a leaf out of the Democratic book, they nominated not Clay of Kentucky, well known for his views on the bank, the tariff, and internal improvements, but a military hero, General William Henry Harrison, a man of uncertain political opinions. Harrison, a son of a Virginia signer of the Declaration of Independence, sprang into public view by winning a battle more famous than important. Quote, Tippecanoe, a brush with the Indians in Indiana. He added to his laurels by rendering praiseworthy services during the War of 1812. When days of peace returned, he was rewarded by a grateful people with a seat in Congress. Then he retired to quiet life in a little village near Cincinnati. Like Jackson, he was held to be a son of the South and the West. Like Jackson, he was a military hero, a lesser light, but still a light. Like old Hickory, he rode into office on a tide of popular feeling against an Eastern man accused of being something of an aristocrat. His personal popularity was sufficient. The Whigs who nominated him shrewdly refused to adopt a platform or declare their belief in anything. When some Democrat asserted that Harrison was a backwoodsman whose sole wants were a jug of hard cider and a log cabin, the Whigs treated the remark not as an insult, but as proof positive that Harrison deserved the votes of Jackson men. The jug and the cabin they proudly transformed into symbols of the campaign 
and won for their chieftain 234 electoral votes, while Van Buren got only 60. Harrison and Tyler The hero of Tippecanoe was not long to enjoy the fruits of his victory. The hungry horde of Whig office-seekers descended upon him like wolves upon the fold. If he went out, they waylaid him. If he stayed indoors, he was besieged. Not even his bedchamber was spared. He was none too strong at best, and he took a deep cold on the day of his inauguration. Between driving out Democrats and appeasing Whigs, he fell mortally ill. Before the end of a month, he lay dead at the Capitol. Harrison's successor, John Tyler, the vice president whom the Whigs had nominated to catch votes in Virginia, was more of a Democrat than anything else, though he was not partisan enough to please anybody. The Whigs railed at him because he would not approve the founding of another United States bank. The Democrats stormed at him for refusing until near the end of his term to sanction the annexation of Texas, which had declared its independence of Mexico in 1836. His entire administration, marked by unseemly wrangling, produced only two measures of importance. The Whigs, flushed by victory with the aid of a few protectionist Democrats, enacted in 1842 a new tariff law destroying the compromise which had brought about the truce between the North and the South in the days of nullification. The distinguished leader of the Whigs, Daniel Webster, as Secretary of State in negotiation with Lord Ashburton, representing Great Britain, settled the long-standing dispute between the two countries over the main boundary. A year after closing this chapter in American diplomacy, Webster withdrew to private life, leaving the president to endure alone the buffets of political fortune. To the end, the Whigs regarded Tyler as a traitor to their cause, but the judgment of history is that it was a case of the biter bitten. They had nominated him for the vice presidency as a man of views acceptable to Southern Democrats in order to catch their votes, little reckoning with the chances of his becoming president. Tyler had not deceived them and thoroughly soured, he left the White House in 1845 not to appear in public life again until the days of secession, when he espoused the Southern Confederacy. Jacksonian democracy with new leadership serving a new cause, slavery was returned to power under James K. Polk, a friend of the general from Tennessee. A few grains of sand were to run through the hourglass before the Whig party was to be broken and scattered as the Federalists had been 
more than a generation before. The Interaction of American and European Opinion Democracy in England and France During the period of Jacksonian democracy, as in all epochs of ferment, there was a close relation between the thought of the new world and the old. In England, the successes of the American experiment were used as arguments in favor of overthrowing the aristocracy which George III had manipulated with such effect against America half a century before. In the United States, on the other hand, conservatives like Chancellor Kent, the stout opponent of manhood suffrage in New York, cited the riots of the British working class as a warning against admitting the same classes to a share in the government of the United States. Along with the agitation of opinion went epoch-making events. In 1832, the year of Jackson's second triumph, the British Parliament passed its first reform bill, which conferred the ballot, not on working men as yet, but on mill owners and shopkeepers whom the landlords regarded with genuine horror. The initial step was thus taken in breaking down the privileges of the landed aristocracy and the rich merchants of England. About the same time, a popular revolution occurred in France. The Bourbon family, restored to the throne of France by the Allied powers after their victory over Napoleon in 1815, had embarked upon a policy of arbitrary government. To use the familiar phrase, they had learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Charles X, who came to the throne in 1824, set to work with zeal to undo the results of the French Revolution, to stifle the press, restrict the suffrage, and restore the clergy and the nobility to their ancient rights. His policy encountered equally zealous opposition, and in 1830 he was overthrown. The popular party, under the leadership of Lafayette, established not a republic as some of the radicals had hoped, but a, quote, liberal, middle-class monarchy under Louis-Philippe. This second French Revolution made a profound impression on Americans, convincing them that the whole world was moving toward democracy. The mayor, aldermen, and citizens of New York City joined in a great parade to celebrate the fall of the Bourbons. Mingled with cheers from the new order in France were hurrahs for, quote, the people's own Andrew Jackson, the hero of New Orleans and the President of the United States, end quote. European Interest in America To the older and more settled Europeans, the democratic experiment in America was either a menace or an inspiration. Conservatives viewed it with anxiety, liberals with optimism. 
far-sighted leaders could see that the tide of democracy was rising all over the world and could not be stayed. Naturally, the country that had advanced furthest among the new course was the place in which to find arguments for and against proposals that Europe should make experiments of the same character. De Tocqueville's Democracy in America In addition to the casual traveler, there began to visit the United States the thoughtful observer bent on finding out what manner of nation this was springing up in the wilderness. Those who looked with sympathy upon the growing popular forces of England and France found in the United States, in spite of many blemishes and defects, a guarantee for the future of the people's rule in the old world. One of these, Alexis de Tocqueville, a French liberal of mildly democratic sympathies, made a journey to this country in 1831. He described in a very remarkable volume, Democracy in America, the grand experiment as he saw it. On the whole, he was convinced, after examining with a critical eye the life and labor of the American people, as well as the constitutions of the states and the nation, he came to the conclusion that democracy, with all its faults, was both inevitable and successful. Slavery, he thought, was a painful contrast to the other features of American life, and he foresaw what proved to be the irrepressible conflict over it. He believed that through blundering, the people were destined to learn the highest of all arts, self-government on a grand scale. The absence of a leisure class devoted to no calling or profession, merely enjoying the refinements of life and adding to its graces. The flaw in American culture that gave deep distress to many a European leader, de Tocqueville thought a necessary virtue in the Republic. Quote, Amongst a democratic people, where there is no hereditary wealth, every man works to earn a living, or has worked, or is born of parents who have worked. A notion of labor is therefore presented to the mind on every side, as the necessary, natural, and honest condition of human existence. End quote. It was this notion of a government in the hands of people who labored that struck the French publicist as the most significant fact in the modern world. Harriet Martineau's Visit to America this phase of life also profoundly impressed the brilliant English writer Harriet Martineau. She saw all parts of the country, the homes of the rich and the log cabins of the frontier. She traveled in stagecoaches, canal boats, and on horseback, and visited sessions of Congress and auctions at the slave markets. 
she tried to view the country impartially and the thing that left the deepest mark on her mind was the solidarity of the people in one great political body. Quote, however various must be the tribes of inhabitants in those states, whatever part of the world may have been their birthplace or that of their fathers, however broken may be their language, however servile or noble their employments, however exalted or despised their state, all are declared to be bound together by equal political obligations. In that self-governing country, all are held to have an equal interest in the principles of its institutions and to be bound in equal duty to watch their workings. End quote. Miss Martineau was also impressed with the passion of Americans for land ownership and contrasted the United States favorably with England, where the tillers of the soil were either tenants or laborers for wages. Adverse Criticism By no means all observers and writers were convinced that America was a success. The fastidious traveler Mrs. Trollope, who thought the English system of church and state was ideal, saw in the United States only roughness and ignorance. She lamented the, quote, total and universal want of manners both in males and females, adding that while they appear to have clear heads and active intellects, there was no charm no grace in their conversation, end quote. She found everywhere a lack of reverence for kings, learning, and rank. Other critics were even more savage. The editor of the Foreign Quarterly petulantly exclaimed that the United States was, quote, a brigand confederation, end quote. Charles Dickens declared the country to be, quote, so maimed and lame, so full of sores and ulcers, that her best friends turn from the loathsome creature in disgust, end quote. Sidney Smith, editor of the Edinburgh Review, was never tired of trying his caustic wit at the expense of America, quote, their Franklins and Washingtons and all the other sages and heroes of their revolution were born and bred subjects of the King of England. End quote. He observed in 1820, quote, During the thirty or forty years of their independence, they have done absolutely nothing for the sciences, for the arts, for literature or even for the statesmanlike studies of politics or political economy. In the four quarters of the globe, who reads an American book, or goes to an American play, or looks at an American picture or statue, end quote. To put a sharp sting into his taunt, he added, forgetting by whose authority slavery was introduced and fostered, quote, under which of the old tyrannical governments of Europe is every sixth man a slave 
whom his fellow creatures may buy and sell. End quote. Some Americans, while resenting the hasty and often superficial judgments of European writers, winced under their satire and took thought about certain particulars in the indictments brought against them. The mass of people, however, bent on the great experiment, gave little heed to carping critics who saw the flaws and not the achievements of our country, critics who were in fact less interested in America than in preventing the rise and growth of democracy in Europe. References J.S. Bassett, Life of Andrew Jackson J.W. Burgess, The Middle Period H. Lodge, Daniel Webster W. MacDonald, Jacksonian Democracy Note, American Nation Series Ostrogorsky, Democracy and the Organization of Political Parties, Volume 2. C. H. Peck, The Jacksonian Epic. C. Schurz, Henry Clay. Questions. Question 1. By what devices was democracy limited in the first days of our republic? Question 2. On what grounds were the limitations defended? On what grounds were the limitations attacked? Question 3. Outline the rise of political democracy in the United States. Question 4. Describe three important changes in our political system. Question 5. Contrast the presidents of the old and new generations. Question 6. Account for the unpopularity of John Adams's administration. Question 7. What had been the career of Andrew Jackson before 1829? Question 8. Sketch the history of the protective tariff and explain the theory underlying it. Question 9. Explain the growth of Southern opposition to the tariff. Question 10. Relate the leading events connected with nullification in South Carolina. Question 11. State Jackson's views and tell the outcome of the controversy. Question 12. Why was Jackson opposed to the bank? How did he finally destroy it? Question 13. The Whigs complained of Jackson's, quote, executive tyranny. What did they mean? Question 14. Give some of the leading events in Clay's career. Question 15. How do you account for the triumph of Harrison in 1840? Question 16. 
why was Europe especially interested in America at this period? Who were some of the European writers on American affairs? Research Topics Jackson's Criticism of the Bank MacDonald Documentary Sourcebook Pages 320-329 to 329. Financial Aspects of the Bank Controversy Dewey Financial History of the United States Sections 86-87 through 87. Elson History of the United States Pages 492-496 through 496. Jackson's View of the Union See his proclamation on nullification in MacDonald, pages 333 through 340. Nullification, McMaster, History of the United States, volume 4, pages 153 through 182. Elson, pages 487 through 492. The Webster-Hain Debate Analyze the Arguments Extensive extracts are given in MacDonald's larger three-volume work, Select Documents of United States History, 1776 through 1761, pages 239 through 260. The Character of Jackson's Administration Woodrow Wilson, History of the American People, Volume 4, pages 1 through 87. Elson, pages 498 through 501. The People in 1830. From Contemporary Writings in Heart. American History Told by Contemporaries, Volume 3, page 509 through 5.30. Biographical Studies, Andrew Jackson, J.Q. Adams, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, J.C. Calhoun, and W.H. Harrison. End of Section 5. Recording by Robert Scott, mojomove411.com. M-O-J-O-M-O-V-E 411.com December 2007